Let's stand as we read from God's Word. Proverbs 6, 20-23 My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp, and this teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life. Lord Jesus, your word is powerful. Not only is it powerful for our spiritual well-being and our salvation, our eternal life, but it's also powerful here and now every day. You have divine instruction for us in each area uh, of our lives. Um, and this morning we're specifically looking at parenting. And I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds and help us to hear what you have for us. Help us to put aside any distractions that we might have this morning and to just focus and concentrate your truth and the principles within them. For we know that when we live by them, the consequences of doing such are to our benefit because of those. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as you can tell, uh, the title for today's sermon is The Five W's of Biblical Parenting. Uh, I figured this was the simplest way to break down um, because it's a topical subject versus going through one specific um, passage, uh, if we ask ourselves the five W questions, I've also added how. Uh, it's a simple way to remember um, the truths and the principles. So, for those of you who aren't parents um, this morning, you may have read the sermon title, and thought, well, this sermon title, this sermon isn't for me, I can check out. Um, maybe for you young people, um, you think, okay, you know, I'm not a parent, I can just, you know, check out this morning. Uh, there's actually a few things in, in here for you. Um, there's a lot of parallels between God as our Father this morning, and us as His sons and daughters. So regardless of your situation, there's truth in here that, that can help you. Uh, the other thing is, um, for you younger people, there will be potentially a day where you become parents. And it's never too early to start gleaning some of these truths from Scripture. Um, also, it can help you understand how to better come under the, um, the authority of your parents in your current situation. So the first W is uh, who. Whose responsibility is it to train your children? So the first passage, uh, the first verse of our passage this morning states, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. It's our responsibility as the parents. And this may seem kind of straightforward, However, uh, there's a significant amount of intentionality required. So we don't, this isn't something we, that we don't take uh, seriously. It's not something that we don't prioritize in our lives. 
It's not the government's job to raise our children, to teach them what's wrong and right. It's not our children's school teacher, uh, the teacher's job. It's not the job of the church staff. It's, it's not the job of the healthcare professionals in our society today. It's not our children's grandparents' job, although they can certainly have um, an element of training. Uh, and it's not the daycare's job, and it's certainly not the media's job. It's our job as parents, and it ought to be one of our highest priorities. A little side note on this. In some family situations, one spouse might do more of the parenting than the other, uh, and the other parent is passive in this role. God created this role uh, of parenting to be shared because each of the gender, the mother and the father, brings certain benefits to the table that the other doesn't. So when one spouse does the parenting, the children don't get a balanced upbringing. Uh, for example, in general, mothers want to protect and they want to nurture. And that's how God created them. Fathers want to challenge their children, and fathers want to push their children to be adventuresome and seek it out. So it's pretty easy to see what happens when one parent doesn't participate equally. If, the, if it's the mother, then the child may learn, may not learn how to overcome challenges. If it's the father, then the child may not get the nurture that he or she requires. So the Bible lays out what it, what it is to be an intentional parent, not a functional parent. We can even see it in our main passage this morning. Would we like our kids to just survive, or do we want them to thrive? Is it our goal to merely provide food or clothing or shelter for them, or is it our goal to help them build character, to become the best individuals that they can be? Um, There's an analogy that I thought of. Um, a military general doesn't go out into battle and say, hmm, okay, I'm in battle here, what am I going to do? No, he comes up with an intentional plan before he goes into battle so that he knows he has the best chance and his men have the best chance of winning. He's deliberate about it. And in the same way, we need to be deliberate about our parenting. And if we aren't intentional about our parenting, we will lose the battle. So let's explore some intentional parenting versus reactive parenting, the opposite of intentional parenting is reactive parenting. Who is actually parenting your children, as mentioned earlier? Who spends the most waking hours with your children? Is it the, the individuals, the entities that we listed earlier, or is it you? Are you able to fulfill your biblical parenting responsibilities with how your life is structured? Ask yourself, what do you spend your time on when you're not at work? Whatever it is, is it as important as your children are? Perhaps we ought to ask ourselves, who or what is our actual God? A good indicator is what we spend our time on and what we spend our money on. Whatever that is, is it really worth the sacrifice that we're making? So, for me personally, those of you that know me know that I enjoy mechanics. You know that I work, like working on, and I'm interested in anything that's got an engine, anything with wheels, doesn't matter what it is, motorcycles, ATVs, um, trucks, cars, whatever. 
And so I spend a significant amount of my time as uh, doing that as a hobby um, in the garage, and I enjoy it. However, there's often times when I have to consider how many hours uh, I've spent in a particular week doing those things in the garage, away from my family, away from my kids. And I have to make a deliberate choice to spend less time there and more time with my children. That's what it looks like for me. I'm certain you can all think of things in your own lives that are similar. So the second W is what? Proverbs 22.15 Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. So we need to start from the right place, from God's truth. The Bible says that a child starts from a place of foolishness, and that this needs to be trained out of them. How many of you have had to teach your children how to lie or to steal? These are things that our children unfortunately do naturally, and it's pretty evident through this that they're starting from a place of foolishness. The fact we don't have to teach them those things, their default is foolishness. So it's our job to correct and instruct them in such a way that this foolishness is driven far from them. If not, they're going to remain foolish. Uh, there is a passage in Matthew chapter 5 that we're all likely familiar with. In it, Christ says that if your eye causes you to sin, or your hand causes you to sin, that you gouge out your eye or you cut off your hand so that you don't risk going to life, or going to hell. It says that it's better to enter heaven maimed than to go to hell. The point of this passage isn't for us to, as believers to cut off our hands and to gouge out our eyes. The point of the passage is that we need to deal drastically with sin. And this is because there is a lot at stake. So I'd suggest to you that in this passage, the word rod, is used in a similar way. We are to deal drastically with the foolishness in our children's lives. It doesn't mean you go out to the garage and you dig around until you find a pipe and then you go back in the house. It's not what it's saying. It's saying we need to deal drastically, intentionally, and seriously with the foolishness in our children's lives. So having said that, there's still a principle here that we shouldn't miss. When our children are too young to reason with, and too young to understand environmental consequences, cause and effect, the Bible suggests physical consequences. This can be a simple smack on the hand, or a flick on the head, or where more is required uh, because of uh, particular uh, disobedience, even a spank. Here's the thing. There are many physical dangers in our children's world. There's a hot stove in every kitchen. Traffic out on the street, Zooming, zooming by in front of the house. Uh, a campfire on a camping trip. I know lots of us go camping. So we need a way to ensure that our children don't get hurt and that our children stay safe. Reasoning with a two, three, or four-year-old about how they can get seriously injured doesn't work. If we get down on their level and we look them in the eye and we discuss about why it's unsafe to run out onto the street or why it's unsafe to touch the stove, etc., they won't understand it. It's, you can't reason with them at that age. They don't have the capacity yet 
will think in a logical way. But if we use careful physical discipline, the child will understand, and the next time we tell them not to touch the hot stove or the campfire or not to run out onto the street, they will obey. Physical discipline must be, how, must be done in love and never in anger. We will discuss this more later. Often, in an attempt to avoid physical dis discipline, we may try different tactics. For example, distracting our children. Unfortunately, distracting parenting doesn't work. What I mean is this. Your child is throwing a fit because he doesn't like the Brussels sprouts or the green beans or whatever that we have served for dinner. So you try to distract him by saying, oh, okay, no problem. What can mama cook you instead? So that he doesn't, that he stops throwing his fit. Let's play this out into adulthood. Let's say this is never something that is addressed. The child's future boss gives them a job and the child says, no, I don't want to do that. I don't like doing that. The boss isn't going to say, okay, no problem. Can you do this instead? Well, the boss is going to say, no problem. There's the door. That's right, you're fired. <laughs> so a good phrase for this is you get what you get and you don't get upset. And a child who understands that life isn't fair and it doesn't always go the way that he or she would like is actually generally happier than the one who has the false illusion of the opposite. Another tactic that's often attempted to avoid physical discipline is counting. I'm going to count to 10. <laughs> You're all laughing because you've seen it. I've seen it too, and I, at, at the beginning, when we first had kids, I tried it. If you don't obey by the time I get to 10, there's going to be trouble. There was a kid on the street where I grew up, and his mother often did this. And he, he saw it as more time to play. He said, okay, great, I got another nine seconds to keep disobeying and keep playing. And that's exactly what he did. It never worked for him. God expects our immediate obedience. We need to teach our children to do the same. God created us and he designed us. And therefore he knows us best. We need to trust him, despite what our current culture might say about physical discipline. So the third W is where. This is from our passage this morning, verse 22. When you walk, they will guide you when you sleep. They will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. Also, similar principle, Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 8. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. To put it simply, everywhere and at every opportunity, training our children is to be prioritized. It's not something you take a back seat to. This is a full-time job, and as mentioned earlier, it's to be done with intentionality. Now we're going to look at the when. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way that he should go. 
Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And from our passage this morning, My son, keep your father's command. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will speak to you. The key word is very obvious in verse 21. It's always. Discipline your children while there is still hope. Proverbs 19.18. Do not be a willing party to their death. So, from these passages, we learn that there is a window of time to train your children. And that window of time is when they're young. If you miss that window, it will be too late. Foolishness, unfortunately, doesn't change to wisdom with age. We, we all know people that we think, okay, this person is significantly older than I am. I should be able to look up to them. And I talk to them about you ask them certain questions and they don't have the answers that you expect that they would. Wisdom isn't automatically connected with age. Don't expect your child to grow out of the foolishness that is their natural default. You need to be training them in the ways of wisdom when they are young so that they won't still be foolish when they're older. The consequences of foolishness are much greater when they become adults. If they aren't tra trained in God's way in finances, for example, with the money that they earn as a child for jobs around the house or for their allowance, they have to learn it as adults, and the stakes are much higher. They can go through bank bankruptcy. If they aren't trained how to study or to work diligently when they are children, they may have to learn it the hard way by failing classes at university or again getting fired from a job. I'm sure we can all think of many other examples where if a child doesn't learn something when they are young, the consequences are much greater when they're older. There's a lot at stake if we do not discipline our children. The second part of the verse states, do not be a willing party to their death. Those are strong words. In a home without proper discipline, children learn falsely that the world revolves around them, and they believe this. What I mean is this. When a child negotiates, or throws a tantrum, or whines and complains, and the parents repeatedly give in to these tactics, the child thinks that he or she must know better than the parents, or the parent wouldn't have given in to them. The parent, the child believes that the parent is actually the fool. Unfortunately, this then sets the stage for the child growing up believing that they don't need God. The last word of the verse is death. I suspect that you, this, is used, this word is used in the same way that God used it with Adam and Eve in the, in the first chapters of Genesis when he told them not to eat from the tree or they would die. This is a spiritual death. As believers, we hope and we pray that our children all get to know our Savior and they come to faith. And we're all told that our children are more likely, here rather, we are told that our children are more likely to know Jesus Christ if we discipline them properly. That's what's at stake. 
Now a big one is how. Look at the how. So John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for one's friends. Christ loved us in a self-sacrificing way. To the point of death, he literally died for us. Parental instruction must be immersed in self-sacrifice as well. Self-sacrifice for our kids. Without self-sacrifice, you will become a dictator. Rules without love, rules without self-sacrifice, is a dictatorship. The child will not trust you if you don't show self-sacrifice for their benefit. You need to prove to your children that you have their best interest in mind. When you instruct them, they need to trust you. If you're a dictator parent, the child isn't motivated by the loss of relationship. They're only motivated by rule. Because, unfortunately, there is no loving relationship. This doesn't motivate them. In a healthy relationship, the child is hurt and upset because he realizes that he has harmed the relationship, and that's what motivates him. I recall when I was in high school, I had these two friends that were brothers, and unfortunately their father fell into this category of a dictator. The brothers didn't enjoy being around him, and his, their friends, myself included, didn't enjoy being around the father either. This one summer, a group of us were going out to a campfire at a ranch that we often hung out at. So I went up to pick up one of the brothers from his house, and myself and another female friend of ours, so that we could all drive out to this ranch together. As he was running down the walk from his house to jump in the truck, his father opened the door and called him back. When his, so my friend went up to the door, and then a few minutes later he came back, and he told us he wasn't allowed to join us any longer. Of course, we asked him why, and all, he told us that all his dad had said was because there was a girl in the truck. With no further reason of explanation, naturally, he was pretty upset. These types of situations in this family were pretty common with these two brothers. They told us often of these situations because we would try to hang out and, and uh, do social events together. Um, we didn't care whether it was co-ed or not, we were just hanging out, having fun, and very often they weren't allowed to join us. The two brothers obeyed their father while they lived under his roof, but as soon as they turned 18, they moved out and they did their own thing. Unfortunately, particularly for the older brother, this involved some major rebellion. He was pretty wild. He got into alcohol, drugs, and everything else that his parents told him not to do. Uh, I actually heard from him a few months ago through another friend, another mutual friend, and I heard that he was homeless. He was actually hiding from the law for not making child support payments. And he was estranged from his own son. It's quite sad, actually. There was zero trust built between my friend his father, because there were only rules. So why do we trust God? Because he's shown that he loves us. How do we know that he loves us? How, we, how do we know this? Because he sacrificed his son for us. We can also see it in the Old Testament, in God's care for the Israelites. 
and in the wilderness, there you saw how the Lord, your God, carried you, as a father carries his son, all the way that you went until you reached this place, the promised land. All of God's commands for us are for our own good. He has our best interest in mind when he instructs us through his word. There's been times in my life where someone might challenge me, a, a non-secular friend of mine, and they might say to me, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in the Bible? Why do you believe in Jesus? One of the answers that I often give is this, because in my life, every single time that I've patternistically followed God's instructions over a long period of time in a specific area in my life, the consequences for doing that have been positive, positive, not just on a small scale, overwhelmingly positive. My life is less chaotic when I follow God's principles. God created us and he designed us and he knows us best. We need to trust him. So let's look a little further into what, not that slide quite yet, what self-sacrificing love is, specifically as parents. So it's saying no to what you want to do in a particular moment, and saying yes to what your child wants to do. The child runs up and says, Dad, can we play Lego? Well, I drop what I'm doing and I go and play Lego, even though I likely want to continue doing what it was I was initially doing. So this means that we get down on the ground and we play Lego, or we play trucks, or we play dolls, or we play whatever our kids like to play on their terms. If your kids are older, then we sit and we talk with them. We give them plenty of opportunity to talk about what they want to talk about, whatever subject they want to talk about. And we sit and we listen. Are we a park bench parent? Our kids ask us to go to the park, so we go, we take them to the park, and we go immediately, we find a bench, and we sit on the bench while our kids are playing on the playground. Our children will not understand this to be self-sacrificing love. Yeah, we've taken them to the park, which is what they want, but it's on our terms. We go to sit on the bench and browse whatever it is on our phones. Or when we go to the pool with our kids to go swimming, do we actually get in the pool with our kids and we swim with them? Or do we go where I want to go, the hot tub, we sit in the hot tub and get out? The gauge is pretty simple for our kids to figure out. Are you doing something with them that you wouldn't otherwise do? That we wouldn't do if they hadn't asked us to? Kids are pretty smart. They only ever see us playing Lego or swimming in the pool when they ask us to. They know that we love them because they never see us do it any other time. Another element to self-sacrificing love is respect. Respect also shows our children that we love them. When we think of a dictator, we think of a leader that doesn't respect his subjects has no care for his subjects and only cares about himself. We need to respect our children. When our children ask why, we're given them, we've given them a specific 
exam uh, specific instruction rather, we ought to respectfully explain to them why. For example, if our son wants to eat his Halloween candy for dinner and nothing else, we need to explain to him that he'll likely get a stomach ache, he'll probably have dental issues, and he won't have the nutrients that he needs to learn and to grow, and therefore he needs to eat the healthy dinner that his mother has prepared for him versus his Halloween candy. Sometimes we actually need to let the child learn the hard way. If he or she is under the safety of our watch, under the safety of our roof, and the consequences are minor because they're still children, we may let them actually eat only Halloween candy for dinner and find out, oh yeah, what Dad said is right. I don't actually feel very good. My two-thirds. I don't have energy to, do, to go to the park and play. Chances are, if we let them do this under our roof, they will not have to learn the hard way as adults. Phrases like, my house, my rules, and because I said so, are not respectful to a child. Those are the phrases that a dictator would use. <clears throat> Respect is explaining to them the reasons why it's better for them to follow a particular instruction that we've given them. This is what God does for us. Most principles in scripture have an explanation or a reason why following them is to our benefit. So we've looked at rules without love what that is, that's a dictatorship. What if we do the opposite? What if we err on the side of love and we don't have any rules? Well, then what we have is anarchy. So love for our children has to be done through a balance of love, self-sacrificing love, and discipline. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Each time, as we talked about earlier, each time your child gets his or her way, they start to believe that the world revolves around them and that the world works on their terms. They only want to play on their terms, they only want to play their games the way that they want to, they only want to watch the shows that they want to watch. And Play with the toys that they like. Why? They're used to everything working on their terms in their home. And so they expect it to work that way everywhere else. They go to a friend's house and they don't get along. They get into fights because they want things on their terms only. When they whine and complain, <coughs> as mentioned earlier, the parent gives in to them. And so they think, well, the world must actually work on my terms. A number of years ago, Jeff and Abilene would remember this, um, I was a youth leader, and there was a particular kid in the youth group. Everything he said and everything that he did was about himself. He always had an agenda. He wouldn't take any interest in what others had to, the other youth had to say, but he only cared about what he could get out of the conversation. He wanted to boast about what he had. He wanted to boast about what he did. He had zero interest in anything that anybody else had to say. He was never taught how to ask how the other kids were doing or what their favorite thing was. He was very selfish and unfortunately, he was an outcast because of this. The other youth didn't want to be around him. Ironically, often the parents of these 
children blame the other kids for not including their son or daughter, and the other kids for not being kind to him or her, when in reality, it's the parent's lack of discipline that causes the child to be this way and not be accepted. Unfortunately, these children often struggle with relationships, and they usually end up also struggling as adults because society rejects them. Again, the consequences of not training our children when they're young are greater when our children become adults. So what are some ways that our children may subtly disobey or disregard our instructions? Kids are crafty. They have certain ways of doing things, and, they, and ironically, sometimes we let them get away with it because we think it's minor. So our kids might delay. We ask them to do something, you know, go get dressed or go have some breakfast or clean up your room. And before they do that, they make a little detour somewhere and they play with something and then eventually they, do. they obey. They might negotiate. And there is an element where negotiation is okay. Uh, as we talked about earlier, when a kid asks why, we should explain to them why. However, if patternistically your child is always asking or always trying to negotiate with your principles for them, then there's an issue. They might avoid what you've asked them to do all, all together. You may say, go clean, up, go clean up the toy room, and they go outside. They might make an excuse. Oh, I'm not feeling good, or I have to use the bathroom. It's time to do the dishes, and one kid always disappears into the bathroom. <laughs> they might throw a tantrum. This is one we've, I'm sure we've often seen at the grocery store. Um, you know, a child wants a chocolate bar in the checkout aisle, and the child hears the word no, so they throw a tantrum, and because of the embarrassment, the parent gives in. Why isn't chocolate bar? What are some reasons that parents don't discipline? In our culture, in our society, very often, it's because of a lack of time. We're too busy. I would challenge that, and I'd say you're too busy not to. Your child will obey you if, if in the big things, if you discipline them on the small things. If you have set a standard at home about obedience, you will never have the problem in the checkout aisle over the chocolate bar. It will be a non-issue. If you've set the standard at home that you are the leader and that they are to obey you, you will not have that problem. Another reason that we don't discipline is it's too much effort. We're lazy or we're tired. There's always the inconvenience factor. And to this I say again, it's a greater inconvenience to have our children throw a tantrum in the checkout aisle than it is to discipline them at home on the small things. Here's a big one. We want to be accepted by our children. So we think that if we discipline our children, they won't accept us, they won't love us. Ironically, the opposite is true. When we don't discipline our children, the roles are reversed. The child thinks we're the fool. They think, oh, my parents let me get away with this, therefore, when they ask me to do such and such, and I negotiated, or I threw a tantrum, or I avoided, and they let me get away with it, I must be the smart one. So they'll actually disrespect you when you don't discipline. Obviously, another one is fear of embarrassment. Uh, 
and this falls into the same story again of you know the checkout aisle with the um, chocolate bar. Another one, uh, another reason why we, we may not discipline is we succumb to the child's manipulation, manipulation, the whining, the complaining, throwing tantrums. Again, if we set the standard in the home, there will be zero issues when we're out at the grocery store or anywhere else. One question, the principles that you have as parents for your children, are they for your children's best interest? If they are, which I'm sure is the case, because we all want our children to do well, and so when we ask them to do something, we have their best interest at heart. If they are, we need to follow through to ensure the principles are being adhered to. Again, using our example of the Halloween candy for supper. We want our children to eat healthy meals for their own good. Not doing so has negative consequences. We love our children and we want them to do well. We want to avoid those consequences from remove those consequences from their lives. Uh, do not allow your children to negotiate about discipline. In Genesis, after the fall, Adam and Eve tried to reason with God. Oh, it was the woman he brought. Eve said, oh, it was his fault. God did not lessen the consequences for their sin. There is no reasonable excuse for patternistic, repeated disobedience. I'm sure we've all heard or made these types of excuses. Uh, when, when our child behaves badly, we might be tempted to say, oh, Jimmy missed his nap today. Or Susie is just hungry, she needs to eat something. Or Carl hasn't had a chance to get all of his energy out yet. Those types of excuses didn't work for the Israelites in the Bible. Recall the story in Numbers 11 with the Israelites when they had the manna. They complained about being hungry. They wanted meat. God punished them with so much quail that they loathed it. And on top of that, as a further discipline, he sent a plague throughout the camp. So don't make excuses for your children. Um, on a bit of a side note, I hear about losing our tempers. And this is something that I struggle with, to be honest. Uh, not losing my temper, but losing my cool with my kids and not dealing with something that I should. So if we find ourselves getting to the point of anger and frustration with our children in a particular situation, there's a good chance that we've allowed them to disobey us in a minor way repeatedly. So we've sort of set a, an ill standard. Let me give you an example to flesh this out. You call your kids to the supper table, and they delay, but you let it slide because they're downstairs playing together and they're having fun. The next day, you're at the park. You tell them that it's time to go, and they don't come right away, but you let it slide because there's other parents around and you don't want to make a scene. This type of thing happens maybe two or three more times throughout the week where you allow your children to delay your instructions. Now it's Sunday morning, and you ask your kids to get out of bed and get dressed and go to church. And then, and they delay, and you lose your temper, and you yell, and you scream at them. The kids are only doing what you've allowed them to do all week long. This is why it's extremely important 
discipline consistently, even when the, the disobedience seems minor. And often it's not a drastic uh, discipline that's required to fix this. It's just a standard, um, consistent discipline. If left unchecked, these minor things become something major. So what does the Bible say about why it's better for our children to be raised in God's way, under God's principles? Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. We will also look at Proverbs 29, 17. Discipline your children. They will give you peace, and they will bring you delight that you desire. First reason why it's better to raise our children under God's principles, God commands us to, as believers, we ought to follow his commands. We ought to follow the example that he's given us, because he loves us, as we saw in the first verse. The second reason why it's better to raise our children under God's principles. If you discipline your children, you will enjoy your children. They will bring you peace and delight. You will want to be with them. When they grow up to be older, they'll want to be at your house. They'll want to come over for supper. They're a pleasure to be with, and they enjoy being with you. This time of year, we're all preparing to send our kids back to school. If you're looking forward to your children going back to school because they'll be out of your hair, you may want to ask yourself why that is. A properly disciplined son or daughter is a pleasure to be around. They have been trained and shown through example how to be respectful and how to be selfless. Many of you know Jordan Peterson. He wrote the book, 12 Rules for Life. And uh, he's got a lot of biblical principles in that book. Um, one of the principles Principle number five, he words this, uh, what we're talking about. Um, rule number five, don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. It's a pretty good way to put it. A third reason why it's better for our children to be raised in God's way. Properly disciplined children are generally not complainers. They understand that life doesn't go their way, and therefore they're not often pessimistic. As we all know, pessimistic and complaining people are not a pleasure to be around. If we have a person in our life, a friend or whatever, or a family member that is often complaining or pessimistic when we call them on the phone, eventually we stop calling them. Not a pleasure to be around. The fourth reason is laid out Proverbs 29.15 The rod and a rebuke give wisdom, but the child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. And another one, Proverbs 10, verse 1. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. So the fourth reason. Disciplined children make their parents proud. Undisciplined children bring shame and grief upon them. So, 
we've looked at the five W's of parenting. It's pretty straightforward scripture. I understand it's difficult to do, having three kids of my own. So I'd like, like to make one final point. Actually, two final points. If we realize that we haven't been going God's way in parenting, we can make a shift. Like Mark talked about this morning, repentance. I was doing, talking about communion. We can turn, we can repent, and we can say to God, I've gone my way in parenting, and I need to repent. And I'm sorry for this. I, I need your grace and your Holy Spirit to help me parent better. And we can set a new uh, standard in our homes. We can drive a stake in the ground and we can say, I'm going to do it better from this point on. And we're going to hit bumps in the road. And we go back and we repent. And we say, well, I drove a stake in the ground on this and this day. And I'm going to do better. Another point. Um, Maybe your, your kids are, are grown. Maybe they're older. Uh, and you feel that you've uh, wronged them or haven't gone God's way in, in parenting. And you've made some mistakes. This is actually uh, an amazing opportunity for to show them God's way and God's cornerstone of faith. The cornerstone of our faith is repentance and forgiveness. So we can go to our kids and say, I'm sorry for such and such. Will you forgive me? I made these mistakes. And the hope is that our kids um, will forgive us and not carry this baggage from our poor parenting into their adult relationships. God accepts our repentance regardless of how long ago we've committed a particular sin. And if your children are grown and you realize you've made some mistakes, it's honestly never too late to take, to make an opportunity to call them up and say, can we go for coffee? And to apologize them, to them and to ask for their forgiveness. So at this juncture, uh, we're going to move into dialogue. Uh, it's a lot of verses I can go through and uh, pull a particular slide up if you guys rather, or I can um, discuss a particular principle uh, that maybe if you're taking notes. Um, so. We'll open it up for dialogue at this juncture.